Welcome to Robin Wesleyan Church. My name is Brock. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so excited you're with us. We would love to know who you are. Uh, I'm really glad you're watching the video, and God has more for you. So please connect with us through our church website, robinwesleyan.com. You can sign up for the email list. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, God has a word for you today. We're looking at Romans, and he wants to speak to you. So I'm so excited for all that God has for you. God bless. It's good to be here. It's a good day. Uh, God wants to speak to us. I've been reading the, uh, the Bible reading plan. It was Romans the past two weeks, and God was speaking to me through it, and he wants to speak to us. Um, so please open your hearts to him as I speak. Uh, Romans is a, a pretty wonderful book, but it can be overwhelming. I don't know if you've ever tried to make sense of the whole thing. Um, Paul is nearing the end of his ministry as he writes this, and uh, perhaps in his prime of his long run-on sentences with many topics and many asides, and, <laughs> and he, doesn't, uh, he doesn't differentiate between what's uh, just an aside, this is a tangent, and we're going to come back to the main point, or is it the main point the whole time, and how is that connected, Paul? I don't know. And uh, I think we can get maybe caught up in some of the more wonderful phrases that he's written, that we can miss that this is a letter, uh, and we can lose the forest for the trees. Um, so as we journey through this this morning, I'd encourage you to try and discover what Paul is saying as a big picture to the Romans a couple thousand years ago. And as we listen for that timeless truth, um, God will speak to you because he wants to encourage you today with a fresh word from him. So it seems to me, as I, I read it this week, that Romans is Paul wrestling with the grounds that they relate to God on. Uh, and the response that's required. And I think there's three different camps Paul talks about. He says there's the unbeliever, there's the Jew, and the Christian. Uh, and what's the response of each? So as we dive in, Romans 1, if you want to look there, it's one of my favorite passages. Um, in verse 19 to 21, Paul explains that we all know God exists, not just Christians, but everyone in the world. Uh, everyone knows his nature and his power. And it can be an overwhelming thing to know, um, to be aware that God exists and we are accountable to him and that he is powerful. It, it's one thing to have someone weaker than me call me to account. Uh, my dog does this often. He says, like, it's time to go outside. And I say, no, it's not. And he's little and he's a dog, so we don't do what he says. Um, but God is much greater than us. So to be accountable to someone that has a standard, that's... That's a pressure, but then the pressure of someone who is greater than us that we can't ignore. Um, that's overwhelming. So Paul says that they, uh, that they suppress this knowledge. But there's no one in the world who we have to convince God exists. We need to help them come to terms with the requirement that he has on them. It's a sobering thing to give account, um, to show our rightness, that we're not fraudulent, especially since I think we're all pretty aware that we have some brokenness in us. Um, and we're responsible for it, not just explain why we did it, um, but it'd be like explaining to the Revenue Canada why we were fraudulent. Like, that's it's not good enough if you can explain why you did it. It's still wrong. We're still accountable. So the last time I spoke with you, I was speaking on prayer, and the prayer, by definition, we said, was us relating to God. And sin is something that offends. Um, it's something that hinders or breaks the relationship. And it could be done in a couple ways. There's a bunch of words for sin in the Bible, and we just translate them all the same, which is a little 
frustrating, confusing. What sense are they saying? Something could be done in poor taste. Um, if you think about a relationship you have with someone, has anything ever been done in poor taste? And you're like, oh, that, that could have been better done. That is the same word that we have in the Bible for sin. Uh, it could be well-intentioned but poorly expressed. Does that make sense? I think we've all done that. It usually happens after dark when we're trying to talk about something important. And I, I say the wrong thing. It could have been a thoughtless shortcoming, uh, an honest mistake that you, you just forgot or it wasn't on your mind. Or it could be the third option, uh, poor taste or thoughtless. Number three is selfish, intentionally or unintentionally lowering them as a priority and elevating me. So that's the, uh, the three kinds of sin in Scripture, the three different ways relationship can break. And that's what Paul's trying to wrestle down is how do we relate to God? Are we in sin and unable to deal with that weight? So we ignore that, hide it, explain it away. Um, I was thinking about the definition I learned in Sunday school, I think from Debbie Nimigan, uh, and it was, it was just last year, right? Um, not, not long ago. Um, but the definition we learned was anything we think, say, or do that breaks God's law. Um, what, what's God's law? And that's something Paul's trying to wrestle down, is what's our relationship to the law? Um, I don't know if you knew, there are 613 laws in the Old Testament. Uh, there are 613 seeds in a pomegranate, apparently. I've never counted, but um, they say that's why there's pomegranates in the, the temple. They, like, inlaid them on stuff. It's because there's 613 seeds and 613 laws. I'm like, wow, it's the holy fruit. Um, I guess things you did before the internet, right? What am I going to do Saturday? Count pomegranate seeds. Um, also, that's, that's our area code, and that's the Sydenham exit on the 401. Just some ways you can remember. 613. So that's the law of God, um, that we're, we're to relate to God right, like in the law, lawfully. But there are so many laws that I don't know what to do with. Like there's that one, it, it always stands out to me, you're not allowed to boil a young goat in its mother's milk. That's oddly specific. What if you boil it in some other goat's milk? That's okay. Or if the goat's not young, that's okay. Or I, That's very specific and very odd. Is that, is that the laws we're supposed to follow? Like, I haven't done that one today. Doing pretty good. Um, interesting. I, I didn't get any tattoos, and that was a law in the Old Testament. But in the same verse, it says, don't shave. And I did that this morning. Ah. So what do we do with these laws in the Old Testament? I don't think we're supposed to throw them all away. Like, murder is still wrong, right? I should still honor my parents. What do we do with these laws? Some of these things are less helpful to us in Roblin 2022 as a standalone idea. But the Bible is not a collection of standalone ideas. It's a story. And understanding how they work is seeing how they fit in the story, and we can learn an application through that. So really simply, sin is just stuff that God doesn't like. Um, there, there's nothing beyond that. There's no moral code higher than God that he agrees with. Sin is things that God says, I don't, I don't like that. Um, and I think there are varying degrees of this. Um, like, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of uh, hazelnut-flavored coffee creamer. 
I, I would rather that, though, than be punched. Like, there is a variety of levels of things that offend me. Hazelnut creamer is, oh, that's regretful. I, I wish it was vanilla. There, there is a better way. Sin is things that God doesn't like. So I think uh, there was a, a really clear lesson I learned in decorating for weddings with some ladies. Um, the, the first thing when you're given direction is you agree. That's, that's step one. You want this table there? Okay. And after you have agreed, then you can ask questions. But if you ask questions first, you're in trouble because they know what's right. And for me to question that is to kind of break relationship and say, I disagree and I think I know better. And I think it works with God that when God says, I don't like that, I think step one is to say, okay, God, I agree with you. Would you help me understand why it's bad? Why was the table runner in the wrong place? It was on the table. Isn't that good enough? No, it needed to be a certain way for it to be right for the wedding. God has a certain way that he wants things done. And I think step one is to ask him. Or, sorry, step one is not to ask him. Step one is to agree and say, God, yeah, you're, you're right. Help me understand how you're right. Sin is what God doesn't like. So we can think through why he doesn't like it and make sense of it. Sense of it. So I think because we know that God doesn't like something, we can learn more about him. Uh, like, if we think about why is murder wrong? What, what makes it a bad thing to do? We agree with God that, yeah, God, we shouldn't kill people. Why is that? Well, I think this is my understanding of why God doesn't like it. Because life is his. Scripture says every breath is sustained by him. He gives each of us life. He numbers our days. And for me to use the gift of free will that he gave me to take something that is his is wrong. Does that make sense? It's me using what he's giving me to do an injustice, to take something that he hasn't given me. It's, it's totally within my bounds to end the life of a carrot. I'm allowed to do that. Maybe even encouraged. Uh, my mom would say so. I should eat, I should eat the carrot. And that, that is an acceptable thing to end. But a human life, that is not my decision. That's God's. Hmm. So we can reason it out and we can help figure out what else he might not like. So some of the Old Testament laws, they don't apply anymore. We're, we're allowed to shave. Cool. Um, I have a pretty nasty neck beard if I don't shave it down. So that's, that's good. Um, Honoring our parents, though, that's still a good one. And how do we discern which, is, which was a cultural thing then? Are we allowed to eat bacon? You know, all of those things. Um, I think that's done by conversing with God. We've got to ask him. Um, so we need to discern what's cultural and what's for us. And then I think the second step is, because sometimes uh, <laughs> there's this thing, uh, that we tend to make God look like us. When we pray, we, we can kind of get in an echo chamber that God likes the things I like. He dislikes the things I dislike. He likes the people I like. He dislikes the people I don't like. And suddenly God looks a lot more like me than him. So the way we can kind of knock those edges off and broaden our 
experience of who is God is in community. We're to seek God together. Um, and when we make norms and understandings together, that's what we call a culture, and we're to create culture together. And uh, it's interesting how different cultures have different norms. I was thinking back when I was in school, um, there were students from Prince Edward Island, and they came freshman year, and they said, so is there potato break? And I'm like, what? What's potato break? Uh, I guess late September, there was no school for a week, so everyone could go pick potatoes. And that was just a normal thing. Um, that, you know, there's, there's harvesting to be done, so school can wait. And there wasn't a potato break in New Brunswick. Uh, it was, it was culture. Culture can be geographical, um, that there are things we do here that they don't do elsewhere. Um, I'm sure many of us are considering stockpiling salt shortly, and not for flavoring, but for the roads, because it snowed this morning. Uh, and that's not something people from Florida do. They don't have a pile of road salt just waiting. I actually have two boxes left over from last year. I'm, I'm excited to be salty. It's a, a geographical thing, culture. Also, culture can be uh, generational. Uh, it can be bound in time. You act different than your grandparents. Um, and just a curious thing, because you were hearing from the youth pastor this morning, there's been a new generation they've identified um, starting grade nine this year. And it's, uh, they have a different culture. They have a different set of norms, expectations, values than the, the people who are graduating high school, which is maybe two generations younger than me. Um, generations keep getting shorter. The, the cultural values keep shifting faster. So we're going to have to find more ways to relate. Uh, I counted, I think there are seven different cultural generations attending in this room right now. That's, that's a lot if you consider there are seven different cultures in the room. We might not be ethnically multicultural, but we are generationally very multicultural. And it's a good thing. Uh, this generation, just if you're curious, they're calling them the open generation, that they're very open to outside ideas. They're less cynical than my generation was, or the ones that followed me. Um, but I think all of these different expressions of life, um, they are different facets. And all of these different facets, if we are uh, kind of envision us as a gemstone, the more facets that are on a diamond, the more ways it can catch light, the more ways it can reflect and hold all of the beauty that is light. So God wants us to continue to create, to continue to be more and more varied in our experiences and our understandings. Uh, it's not bad. It's tricky to relate, though. Uh, so we need to do this. We need to talk to God about what he wants, and we need to practice those things in culture except we have seven-ish cultures here. And then if you think about the people who live in town versus outside of town, there's another cultural shift there. And many, many ways we are different. But it's not bad. So I, I found a, a key in a book I read. It's called Soundtracks by the author John Acuff. He's really good. And uh, the book's called Soundtracks. And he summed up uh, our mindsets, our discussions, our philosophies into three categories, three questions you ask it, and it has to pass all three tests. Question one, uh, is the idea true? If it's not true, let's stop thinking about it. It's not helpful. Um, and question number two is, is it helpful? It might be true to discover the last digit of pi. It will not help me in my ministry. It might help someone doing some very technical work, but it's a true thing that isn't helpful. 
So it's got to be true. It's got to be helpful. And lastly, is it kind? Um, it would be ultimately unhelpful if someone came and told me all the ways I'm failing in life. It would be true and helpful for me to know how I could improve, but it would be overwhelming and unkind, and I, I would probably stall if someone told me every time I ate the wrong thing and sat with bad posture and all the ways I could be bad in life. It, it needs to be true and helpful and kind, just as our guiding discussions on culture. Uh, Philippians 2, 5 to 7. It's a really good verse if you want to look it up there as I share it with you. Um, it's Paul writing to the Philippians, and he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who was in, very, who was in the form of God, but didn't count equality with God something to be grasped or held on to, clung to. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And it goes on, and I'll get distracted if we keep reading it. Um, but Jesus, who, who is better than all of us? Um, he didn't think heaven was something to be held on to. Um, if you think about all the glory of heaven, all the beauty that's there, all the comfort, all the life, the lack of problems, and all the honor that Jesus deserves that he was receiving there. And he left that. And he said, I will give that up. Not for a day, a week, for years. He gave that up so he could relate to us. And it's challenging that Paul says we should have that mindset. Like, oh, I, I can usually be humble and self-sacrificing and, you know, allow others to be better than myself in my mind for an hour. And then, you know, I want to go do my own thing. Um, but Paul said that this mindset is ours in Christ. It's available to us that we can receive this. There's this other path available to us in Jesus that we can be like him, not cling to our rights, but lower ourselves. And the rest of this passage talks about how Jesus humbled himself and then God raised him up. So it's interesting. Um, I'm not knocking, encouraging ourselves. David, David encouraged himself. He said, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. I will still praise him. And he, he's having a rough day, and he talks himself out of it. Um, and that, that's good. Um, but Jesus emptied himself. He lowered himself. He discomforted himself. From heaven to earth, from glory of paradise to the Middle East, pre-air conditioning, pre-deodorant. Um, if you can begin to capture what that would be like. He came as a baby. He died as a criminal. And God raised up his humble son, not leaving him in squalor nor in death. He raised him from the dead and honored him. And Paul says, we'll, now, we'll all now say, Jesus is Lord, Master, and King. And this honors the Father. So, interesting. It's again, it's not just that the Christians will go to heaven and say Jesus is king. Everyone will. Everyone knows he exists, and in the end, everyone will say he is and bow. But if we are to be like Christ or Christians, little Christs, uh, now we need to humble ourselves to not take ourselves as so significant. 
The creator of the universe didn't see us as beneath him, though we were. Um, we were less than him in quantity and quality. It was an interesting idea that occurred to me. The, an infinite amount of anything is better than a finite amount of something. If you gave me a pound of gold right now, that, that's a finite amount of wow, that's cool. An infinite amount of flour is worth more than a finite amount of gold. Curious. I, I think we can grasp that conceptually. Um, and even if we make it more realistic that the pound of gold is not pure or purified, it's not ready for anything. Um, Jesus is more than us. He is, he is infinite and I am finite. And he is better. And he lowered himself. And we're supposed to have this attitude. How can our peers, family members, neighbors, and coworkers not be worth us lowering ourselves to relate to them? To set aside our rights and what's due to us. Um, to put aside the respect we deserve. Hmm. So, where are we standing with God? Paul's trying to get at this because it's, it's about relationship. There are only a few categories here. Um, do you know where you are with God right now? And do you like where you're standing? Uh, he said that the, the unbeliever knows God exists and hides from that idea. That they're aware of where they are and uncomfortable with it. But I think sometimes we can so convince ourselves of the discomfort being unreal that we act and believe that it isn't. Are we right with God right now? Are you aware of him? He's in the room. Uh, it's something I continually try to become more and more sensitized to. God of the universe is here right now and he wants to talk to us. What am I thinking about? Am I open to him? Am I distracted? Do I like my standing before God? So, we're still in chapter 1. 1-7, uh, uh, it says he's writing to believers, a gathering of people, not unlike us, uh, who have come to seek God. And he calls them holy, which is a hard word to be applied to us. That They are set apart, special, pure. Uh, and the, the word for pure means one. Pure gold is only gold. A pure people is a single-minded focus. Let, think of a leaf fan. All they can think about is the leaves. And they're always hopeful that they'll win. Uh, we are called to be pure, focused, fans of God. Single-minded and without blemish. So there's a tension here. That's what Paul calls the church. That's what applies to us. We are God's holy people. And there's a tension. He calls them holy. God calls us holy. And we are in Christ We receive that standing with God that we didn't earn, uh, a relationship and treatment we don't deserve. And in that tension, it takes effort to keep the tension. Uh, that we are not identified as our faults and our shortcomings, but we also can't ignore them and just say, well, it's fine. Paul said, should we sin more that grace could increase, that there would be more things for grace to cover? He said, no, we should stop sinning. And he continually talks about how 
It's a very real plan, not just a distant hope to no longer sin, to no longer offend and break relationship. It's, it's a hard tension that we are called holy, but we don't always live it, and we're supposed to. I, uh, I hurt my foot this camp, uh, this summer at camp. I sprained my second metatarsal or something like that. They used a lot of terms and said I needed to take it easy for two weeks. I took it easy for a week and a half, and then I got excited playing with my nephew and hurt it again. And then a month later, I thought, well, you know, it's been long enough, and I started goofing around at youth group, and I hurt it again because I, I, didn't, I didn't take care of it long enough. I thought I could ignore my brokenness and act like I was whole, and it just exaggerated and prolonged my healing. There's brokenness in us, potentially. Are you aware of it, and are you doing something about it? It takes effort to do both. It's, it's uncomfortable to be aware of our weakness. But Paul assumes wholeness in us. This tension isn't one that God wants us to stay under. He doesn't want us to continually be called holy and not measure up. He wants us to attain maturity. Um, and this tension, it's not evil, it's not bad or wrong to be in tension. It's, it's bad to stay there. Um, the, the term the Bible uses for wholeness, for holiness, it, it could be uh, perfection. It could just be maturity, depending on the context. And I think both work. Uh, I think of Pastor Burt when he's talking to Scotia. Anytime she's here in the office, he says, Scotia, you're such a baby. And, and he's right. And that's, you know, it's fine. It's cute. Uh, it's true. But she isn't staying that way. The, the tension of me not measuring up and not being able to do all that I, I'm meant to in life is meant to give way to maturity. So we all come to faith in weakness, and we all stumble in many ways, but we're meant to move beyond sin. Romans 3.10 says that no one is righteous, not one. No one seeks God. Interesting. This is obviously not talking about everyone always, because here we are seeking God. So how do we live right with God? That's our starting place, is that no one is righteous, no one's good enough. Um, so I think the main thing that Paul's talking about in Romans, he keeps playing around with this idea of what is the law, the 613 uh, so chapter 3, verse 19, he says, Obviously, the law applies only to those to whom it was given. For its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show the entire world is guilty before God. That's its purpose. We don't, we don't have an excuse. Uh, parents, have you ever had your child come to you and they did a wrong thing, but they have lots of excuses? I'm pretty good at making up excuses. Uh, if I can create anything, it's an excuse. The law says we are without excuse. The law applies to us. We've been given scripture. Its purpose is to show us our fault. 
It's a standard to compare ourselves to. In this sense, though, the law is more answer sheet than teacher. It doesn't have the ability to make us right. It just shows us we're wrong. Uh, and Paul says the law is like a mirror, which is helpful. I wonder if we don't read our Bible like it's a mirror that we carefully polish and uh, ensuring there's no dust, no streaks. It's beautiful. And then we don't take any time to look at ourselves in it. We have this beautifully beloved, maintained mirror. It's gorgeous that we never see ourselves in. The same way someone could be unaware of the spinach in their teeth and unashamed, this, the discovery of our shortcomings is uncomfortable. But Romans 5, 1 to 5 said, um, it, it's really good. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Woohoo! Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Oh, Knowing suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Hmm. Curious. We rejoice in our sufferings. That is not a very Canadian idea. We're, we're a little masochistic when you talk to somebody who's not from here. They say, wow, it's so cold. And we kind of puff our proper chest and say, yeah, it's, it's pretty cold. We're pretty tough, us Canadians. Minus 40, that's, that's fine. It's a good day for a walk. Uh, that we're, we're kind of proud of that um, when we're warm. I've never heard a Canadian brag about how cold it is when we're out in it. It's usually sitting on a couch somewhere cozy, maybe with a warm beverage. Uh, but Paul said that we are to rejoice in suffering. That is hard, and hard to do truly. Uh, like, it, it could be kind of easy to ignore the suffering and say, like, yeah, I may have lost my leg, but the sun's shining. <laughs> that's, that's rejoicing beside suffering, not in it. Does that make sense? Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Our hope is that we go to heaven, that God is with us, that we become like him, that we no longer offend him. Uh, my theology professor that I often talk about, Dr. Shannon, he's the guy who, who uh, his parting words to me, uh, I, I imagine I will never see him again in life. And uh, I'd look forward to his blessing when I went, because he's that kind of way. And he came up to me and he said, good job, Brock, well done suffer well for Jesus. And he left. <laughs> Is there no better blessing than to go and suffer well? But my, my big struggle with him for years is he is a, a very staunch, very well-read Calvinist. He's a theology professor. And I went toe-to-toe -to -toe with him hour after hour, trying to convince him that there is a better way. And after... I had him every day for two and a half years, five days a week. Uh, I took every one of his coffee breaks. He bought me a lot of coffee. Um, at, during one of our discussions, he said, Brock, you know, your, your theology is much more hopeful than ours. He thinks there is no hope to ever stop sinning in this life. 
And I, I just can't accept that, that I will offend the God who loves me and saved me every day until I die. I, I can't deal with that, and that's not acceptable. And I don't see it as scriptural, that we are required to offend the one who loves us. We, we need to be more offended by our sin, that we can move on and be whole. So the law, it's a mirror. We're under grace. It means, uh, it doesn't mean we don't check the mirror anymore. Grace means our relationship with God isn't determined by our appearance. It isn't determined by our performance. Without grace, we can't do anything about the mess. Uh, I was changing a very dirty diaper this week, and I thought about all of our best efforts being changing a dirty diaper with one wipe. You can make some progress and, you know, do-it-yourself section at the library and some best practices, and you can be nice and reliable and organized. Um, but after a while, the one wipe is just moving stuff around. It's not cleaning up anymore. We can just start smearing our weakness and our mistakes around. We can't try enough to be holy. But it's grace. Uh, I think we've lost something here in the word grace because we've heard it so much, and maybe it's a little bit churchy. Like, you know that thing, if you say a word ten times, you kind of lose the meaning in your mind? Uh, grace. It's the, their word for gift. It's where we get charity. Um, it was just a gift that we can relate to God. We didn't earn it. But then he says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. That's Romans 6, 12 and 14. This, this next bit's a little wordy, so I've got a poor translation that might help us not get lost in the words. Romans 7, 21 to 24. He said, I do what I don't want to do, and then I miss doing the thing I wanted to. It's a double whammy, like when you try to go to apologize to someone, but you end up offending them instead. Have you ever done that? That's what Paul's talking about here. He said, so I find it to be a law, and always, that when I want to do what's right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I want to do right. But I see my members in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to sin, to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man am I, who will deliver me from this body of death? And right after that, he says, it, it's Jesus. Jesus will rescue us. So the law is a mirror. And Paul is saying, how do we relate to God? Is it entirely by your performance? You've got one wipe. Can you clean up the mess? Are you going to ignore that the mirror is there and ignore that you're dirty? I would encourage us to look every day. Uh, this, is, this is now beyond the scripture and into an application. Um, so if you don't like this part, find your own way to do it. That's fine. But we've got to look at ourselves to examine ourselves and ask him, what's, what's the next target, God? Don't do it without him because two things happen. Uh, we'll either feel really good about our progress and over-praise over ourselves for all we've done or beat ourselves up incessantly 
And Satan is totally content if you're prideful or so humbled that you won't let God lift you up. Jesus humbled himself with God, and then God raised him up. Look every day. And I would encourage you to be a son, not a slave. A slave acts out of requirement, but a son keeps improving and taking ownership in their father's values. A son doesn't work for wages. Um, if someone works for you and they do their job and you pay them, that's not thanks. It's not a reward. It's just doing the job. A son works for his father's pleasure. Um, one of the delights of being a youth pastor is I am often around for that moment, maybe even chairing the conversation when a youth realizes their parents do know something. And it, it's a wonderful conversation. It happened once or twice this fall already. I, I love it. When they turn 17, 18, and they're like, oh, yeah, Dad said that before, and it worked. Huh. Maybe, maybe I should listen to them. Um, We should do things our Father's way. And God is unlike our families here, um, that as wonderful as our parents can be, um, God's way isn't just an option of a good way to do things. It's the way. That's one of his names. He is the way. Anything else, you're bushwhacking and getting lost. It's perfect. It's best. To disagree with it is foolish, if not evil. So it means we have to learn, uh, I heard this acronym last week, uh, HOT, humble, open, and transparent. Humble means I'm, I'm not the hero. God, would you come help me? I need help. And be open. I am interested in doing it your way. It's like the, the wedding decorating. You say, yes, why? Help me understand. But I, I will do it your way. And transparent. I'm not hiding. I'm not hiding my shortcomings. I'm not hiding my concerns. Be humble, open, and transparent. God is big enough and he's self-confident enough to deal with our true feelings. That We don't need to hide how we are with him. We don't need to not say something because we're worried how we would feel. We're not under the law. We're not measured by our performance. And I think he's more offended by us not saying it and stepping back and hiding than having a tussle. Uh, be ready if you do have a fight with God. Job did that that one time. It was pretty fantastic. He had this amazing vision and got put in his place. It was, it was a good time. I don't know if I want to do it. We need to grow in our capacities to process the hard, the uncomfortable, uh, and not just stuff stuff down. We need to process it, to pray it through. Maybe you think it through on a walk or in your favorite chair, or talk with someone close, or journal. But we need to process these things, not ignore them. He might ask you to do some odd things. Uh, as a teen, I was, uh, I, I felt like God wanted me to abstain from something trivial, and I forget what it was. Um, but I was really wrestling with it. And other believers in my life enjoyed that thing, and it was just fine. I, I, maybe it was a TV show, I don't know. Um, but I remember my nanny was driving me home uh, down Bell Rock Road, and I asked her about it. Um, and I don't remember the thing, but I remember her response. Uh, she told me that I should follow my conscience, and 
that the thing wasn't evil or immoral, but I had to work out my faith in fear and trembling. And uh, her example to me was that she felt convicted by God that she couldn't trim her fingernails on Sundays because it was the Lord's day and that was his time, not hers. That's not a law. But that's what God had for her. We're all broken in different ways and God wants to make us whole, to conform us to the image of his son. My grandma understood this wrestling so she wouldn't trim her nails on Sunday. It was either Saturday or Monday. didn't matter. It's Sunday. You can't do that. Sin is breaking relationship, and we must keep that relationship. I'm not trying to have your relationship with God. I'm trying to have my own. We must keep the relationship. Jesus restored it. He made a way, and we're his children. But we've got to take action to grow up, to not offend him forever. Romans 2.4 said that his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. How do we do it? Um, two things. One is that the Bible says of itself, Scripture is a lamp to our feet and a light to the path. Um, I think of it more like a lamp and a vague map than a floodlight and a GPS. It requires a closeness and an intimacy to not get lost which is the goal. I think that's why God doesn't give us the layout for our life and say, I'll check in with you in 10 years. Expect him to continually guide you. There may have been a habit or a practice, an attitude that was helpful for a season, um, or it didn't need addressing yet. Uh, But he brings it up now because it's time, because it's ready um, for you to grow in this way. So that's step one. Um, expect it to be short-term. Number two, however the Lord leads you, Corinthians tells us that we should examine ourselves before communion. Uh, Many of us feel God's leading after a sermon, Uh, but personally this week I've heard God clearest in the areas to grow in maturity and obedience through repentance uh, in like reflective prayer just before sleep or in the dark hours or after supper or during a commercial break. But God wants to speak to us, and we don't have to wait till Sunday. We don't have to wait till communion, till an altar call to pray. So I reflect back on the day, and I think on, of the goings-on and allowing God to highlight an attitude or an action, a missed opportunity or a mistake, a hasty word or a misrepresentation, and I ask him to speak to it. I bring up the ones I know about, because sometimes we know, like, yeah, I I did that doozy today, and that needs help. God, would you help me? And it's interesting. I'm apparently not that quick of a learner, because the same things keep coming up. Um, But his goal is restoration. His goal is refreshing. So the frequency is not the the important thing today, but we've got to examine ourselves. We need to look ourselves in the mirror. So as the band comes up and I pray for us, I would encourage you to examine yourselves as we worship today, uh, to seek God together. We're going to sing songs of worship, and I think as we love on God, he will lovingly guide our hearts and draw things to mind of ways we can grow in him.
The important thing is that we are increasingly on his schedule and on his page. So let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and that you want to speak to us. Uh, God, would you speak to us now about a step we can take to know you more, um, to offend you less. We want to be like you, God, and we love you. So would you grow our love, grow our likeness of you as we sing in your name. Amen.